You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Immanuel Kant famously distinguished between things existing as they are, impervious to our mental probings, and objects, those pieces of our world that only come to us as organized and mediated by the senses and understanding and concepts of subjects. Later on, philosophers who had come to be called existentialists, whether they liked it or not, came to regard the imagination, our mental power of organizing and even shaping our world, as one of the core realities of human existence. Michael Farmer, in his recent book, Imagination and Idealism in John Updike's Fiction, follows the course of imagination as the existentialist imagined it, as a weapon, an escape, sometimes even as a mode of redemption in John Updike's novels and stories and poems and memoir. And today he's joining us on Christian Humanist Profiles, not as the interviewer, but as the author. So, Michael, thanks for sitting on the other side of our imaginary desk. Sure, it feels weird. <laughs> I promise to be gentle. This book's project, as I read it, seemed to be situating Updike's fiction and his other writings in the existentialist tradition that differentiates between the thing for itself and the thing in itself. And I'll leave the French phrases to you because you know how badly I pronounce French. So since we'll be throwing those categories around in this conversation, talk a little bit about how that distinction relates to things versus objects in Kant or other traditions and what is particular about the way that Sartre and other existentialists do with this distinction. Sure, and the, the French terms are l'être en soi and l'être pour soi. And that's why I don't say them. The thing in itself is the world apart from consciousness, being in itself. It's it's being, it's things that exist without being aware they exist, so they don't have self-consciousness. Uh, being for itself is the opposite, so it's, it's essentially human consciousness, uh, although Sartre doesn't really talk about whether animals might have consciousness like that. If they did, if they had similar self-consciousness, presumably they would also be um, be uh, being for itself as opposed to being in itself. Okay. So it's not precisely the distinction between a thing and an object in Kant. It's more a, a matter of self-consciousness. Yeah, I think that that's the way that's the way I read Sartre anyway. And while I use other existentialists in the in the book, I'm not sure all of them would sign off on exactly what I've done with them because I've kind of taken them and turned them into Sartre. So <laughs> I think I think if Heidegger has a chance to read this book, he's probably going to have some things to say to me because I'm not sure I'm not sure he would he would agree with with uh, Sartre's metaphysics. In fact, I know he wouldn't. I just I just used some uh, Heideggerian language to make it uh, clearer. I hope, which may be the first time anybody's ever used Heidegger to make something clearer. <laughs> that's nice. That's <laughs> nice. Well, I mean, so yeah. Go ahead, no, go, go ahead. ahead. I was going to say, I mean, you know, since we're talking about Heidegger, I mean, one of the notions that you brought in from Being in Time that I recognize from our time reading that together is the notion of world in a philosophical sense. So tie that in with the being in itself, being for itself. How do those terms relate to each other? Yeah, and I'm I'm, I'm getting this not from Being in Time, although I think I may quote Being in Time here and there in the book. I'm I'm really thinking of his long essay on aesthetics, The Origin of the Work of Art, mm -hmm. where he says that where he says that the work of art sets up a world that it then orients around itself. And so this this matches what the use I'm making of of Sartre's ontology. I, I'm I'm saying that the the work of art, the work of imagination, uh 
interprets the world, right? So uh, we're always interpreting the world. We have no innocent access to the thing in themselves. The 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 who who says that the trace of the human serpent is overall? I do not know. I don't know either. But whoever says that, I think <laughs> is, is saying something saying something very similar to what I'm saying. And I bring in Heidegger to talk about a specifically aesthetic use of that. That the the work of art is setting up a world for the rest of us to live in. It sets up its own world, he says. Um, now I probably understand about 30% of the essay, The Origin of the Work of Art. And while I was reading this summer for another project I'm doing on Heidegger, I, I found where he explicitly says that the work of art is not uh, being for itself, being imprinted on being in itself. Uh, he says that in one of his, his lectures on uh, Holderlin. So like I said, I'm not sure he would completely sign off on this, but if you mm -hmm. read me as reading Heidegger through Sartre, maybe uh, maybe you can <laughs> forgive my, my bad use of him. But the, the idea here is that the, the work of art is an act of seeing that does not it's not innocent. It doesn't give you the world as it is. It represents rather than presenting. It it creates a new world on the model of whatever world you're standing in. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. It, it makes good sense. And I mean, as we dig into the particular novels and stories, uh, I think those are going to be handy for our listeners to hold on to. So I'm glad you explained it there. Uh, now, one interesting, and I mean, it kind of emerges in one place and then it goes underwater and then it pops up again later on, uh, is the concept of materialism. And it's interesting because, I mean, if we're distinguishing between the self-conscious reality versus the non-self-conscious reality, uh, materialism, I mean, is, I guess you could say, just kind of the baseline for the one, but it's a genuine threat for the other. So, I mean, how is materialism a menace in these stories we're going to talk about? Yeah, well, um, a part of this comes from Sartre because I, Sartre, he must have been a materialist in some ways, right? Because he was a very famously an atheist, um, mm. and yet his his focus on consciousness, I think, makes any kind of simplistic Richard Dawkins style materialism very difficult. Mm -hmm. He 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 clearly feels the encroachment of that being in itself against the being for itself. The, the the sort of uh, machinations, the atomic machinations of the physical world threaten him. And, and you definitely see that in Updike, too. In, uh, actually, I think the best place to go is the essay he wrote for uh, the radio program This I Believe. Mm -hmm. um, he did that very late in his life. I think it was like 2005 or 2006. I've got that here, so I'm just going to read the whole thing. You know, I, 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 we might have to pay for that. I'm not sure, but I paid so much for the rights uh, for these pieces in the book that I have trouble believing they're going to sue me. <laughs> uh, cosmically, I seem to be of two minds. The power of materialist science to explain everything from the behavior of the galaxies to that of molecules, atoms, and their sub-microscopic components can scarcely be doubted. Such science forms the principal achievement of the modern mind. Its manifold technical and medical benefits are ours to enjoy. On the other hand, subjective sensations, desires, and may we even say illusions, compose the substance of our daily existence, and religion alone in its many forms attempts to address and placate these. We are part of nature, 
and natural necessity compels and in the end dissolves us, yet to renounce all in any supernature, any appeal or judgment beyond the claims of matter and private appetite, leaves in the dust too much of our humanity, as, the, as through the millennia it has manifested itself in art and altruism, idealism and joie de vivre. So he, throughout his career, and actually increasingly as he goes through, he's very, very interested in science. He, he, uh, he subscribes... I think of his entire adult life to popular science. And and if you've read a book like uh, Roger's version, which I know you have, mm-hmm. you, you see him at least attempting to integrate the most recent scientific discoveries into the fictional world of the book. I'm not a scientist. I don't know how well he does that. But he's fascinated by science. And he's terrified by it because increasingly when he when he looks into the science, he sees – a universe that has no place for human beings. It's it's empty. It's meaningless. It's it's mechanized, and and as he says in that in that this I believe it, uh, essay, he he can't accept that. There's something there's something deep within him that revolts against it. And so throughout his fiction, you see this you, you see this really almost constant motion of people. People being attracted to a mechanized universe and being repelled from the mechanized universe. Um, people, people wanting to believe in immortality, for example, and feeling really at the depth of their being like they can't believe in immortality. Whenever you see an Updike character not being able to sleep, and there's lots of insomniacs in Updike's fiction, mm-hmm. whenever you see that, it's generally somebody wrestling with exactly the problem he's talking about here. And he has a great essay toward the end of his life. It's in Due Considerations. I think it's called The Future of Faith, where he has such a crisis himself. He's in a hotel room in Rome, and a thunderstorm wakes him up, and he can't go back to sleep because he can't figure out what to do with the material world and hmm. and his spiritual longings. How very, I can't, how very Martin yeah. Luther... Yeah, it is. It is very Martin Luther, isn't it? But but the uh, it, it's a much different sort of sort of concern. I, I think about uh, Paul Tillich's the concept of anxiety, and and he he talks about how the the ancient anxiety is about whether you're going to live or die, and the modern anxiety is about um, about whether your life has any meaning, and that's mm-hmm. that's the anxiety he has here because in a materialist universe, as I think he recognizes rightly, life can't have any real meaning can't have any fundamental meaning. Now, Sartre says that too, but Sartre doesn't think life has any fundamental meaning. You know, that that's the the kind of basis of atheist existentialism is that whatever meaning you're going to find in the universe, you're going to put into the universe. I think Updike goes along with that more than we might imagine he does because I think he conceives ultimately as of faith as an act of the imagination where you're imprinting um, meaning on a apparently meaningless universe. I don't get into that as much in this book. I just don't talk about faith that much in this book. But uh, mm. that's that's ultimately what I would say about Updike is he conceives of faith as as an act of imagination over and against a world that uh, appears at least to be meaningless. Right. And uh, to, to address one novel that you didn't dig into, but I've actually read, which that Venn diagram doesn't overlap much. Uh, but in his novel, uh, In the Beauty of the Lilies, I mean, that dynamic runs through all four generations of that family that, you know, there are definite scenes. And I mean, as I, as I was reading your book, I started remembering that novel. Uh, but there are scenes over and over and over again of whatever character you're dwelling on at the moment imposing order onto a world that refuses to be orderly 
Well, yeah, and what's interesting about that book is the variety of religious experience in it, right? I mean, mm, you have sure. you you. It has been ten years since I've read it, so you may have to you may have to correct me. I, it's you have, been about that long for me too. So go ahead. <laughs> so we're both we might both be wrong, but you have the Clarence. Is that his name? The pastor who loses his faith. Um, yeah, you, yeah. You, you have there just the the complete failure of traditional religion to do this in the modern world. He's overcome, as I remember, by materialist science. It's from reading, it's from reading the science of the early 20th century yeah. that he loses his faith. And then he you becomes his, an encyclopedia salesman. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know what do pastors do when they when they can't be pastors? <laughs> um, but then you have his son, who who I think, as I recall, and this is the one I'm the least sure of, he attempts to uh, he, he attempts to find meaning in the universe by by throwing himself into his work. Is that correct? Yep. And then uh, his daughter, uh, the the wonderful passages in that movie about the way movies that movie in that novel about the way movies have uh, have replaced religion for most of us as the uh, as the agent of of imagination mm-hmm. and then finally the 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 final the final character you know finds the f- finds meaning in his self-sacrifice mm-hmm. that he performs at that you know waco-esque cult oh sure 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 that was a, not a very thinly veiled allegory if i were if i were writing specifically on faith and imagination i think i would definitely have dealt with that novel mm-hmm. all right all right well, let's, let's turn to the stories you do write about, and I'll go ahead and tell listeners that I've read about a third of the works that Michael writes about, so forgive my dwelling on some and flying over others. Oh, well, um, I mean, to be, to be fair, Updike's collected works take up four shelves on my bookshelf, so oh, I mean, God, he's, okay. he's, he's got a lot. I don't know anyone who's read them all. Okay, all right. Well, the first major division of your book, Michael, deals with stories in which parents exert a mythological and a mythopoetic imagination on their children. So choose a couple passages in which children live in and in which children resist their father's and their mother's myth-making. Sure, and I, I want to point out before I do that that uh, like a lot of stuff in Updike's fiction, this is heavily autobiographical. His own mother, Linda Grace Hoyer, uh, was a uh, really a, a force of nature, she she dominated his life, um, and and to some extent you wonder if he would have been a writer without her because she wanted to be a writer like like it was it was her goal to be a writer and she I think probably to her chagrin never got published till after he was she had a couple stories in the New Yorker mm-hmm. after he became notable there although I, I must point out she did so under the name Linda Grace Hoyer so it wasn't immediately obvious that it was his mother and I don't I've not heard anyone suggest that the only reason she got published was because of who her son was but she dominated his his early life and in fact the 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 central trauma of his childhood is when he was I think he was 14 um, his mother moved the family from Shillington Pennsylvania which it, to hear him tell it is like a Walt Disney-esque small town you know a, a wonderful place to be and and moved out to the country into this farmhouse which is where she grew up and where she always wanted to return to and what she always wanted to be. So in some sense, the, the best text for seeing this is not any of his fiction, but uh, a biography of him. Because, I mean, her dream became the fabric of his life. And you, you do get a number of short stories and novels that do that. I think probably the most obvious one is the novel or the short story Flight, which... Mm-hmm tells tells that uh tells that story almost 
almost without embellishment. Um, from my understanding, I wasn't there, obviously, but the, the, the things that Alan Dow, I think the kid's name is, the things that he claims of his mother appear to be things that Updike could have claimed of Linda. Um, and the word myth is used over and over in that, in that story. I mean, he, he explicitly says that his mother makes mythological figures of all the people in, in her life, and then they are forced to live with it. And that story is about her telling him from a very early age that he's special and that he needs to get out of, um, uh, Oling, Oling, o- Olinger is the name of the, uh, of the town that represents Shillington in Updike's fiction, uh, that he needs to get out of Olinger and, um, and him trying to get past the idea that to obey her is to go away from her and to disobey her is to end up obeying her because it would be to go away from her. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So it's this, it's this like net that's been cast over his entire life. She has determined it for him and he's always going to have to live his life in the, in the shadow of these things she's chosen for him. Now that's probably true of all of us to one extent or another. I think, I mean, I, I don't have children. You do. You can tell me if I'm <laughs> wrong, but you must, you, it must be impossible to avoid making a mythology for your children. Like, like even before you have them, you must have some idea of what their life is going to turn out to be. And yeah, what do well, you do? Yeah. I Go mean, ahead. I, please. Well, no, no, no. I was just going to say, I mean, that is something that I've, I think, avoided to a large extent, but I mean, it was an exertion and a discipline to do so. Right. So at the very least, that's the natural tendency. So we're yeah, all, yeah. we're all trying to decide how to, how to live with our parents. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just the, the, the stories where he does this, he, they make them very explicit. So maybe the key one, the most obvious one is flight. I think the key one is probably of the farm. Mm-hmm. Uh, which you know, it's it's the same it's the same dynamic. It's a it's a mother who has taken her sensitive son uh, away from the town that he saw as the you know a childhood paradise, who had these great plans for him. Except the difference between Updike and his protagonist Joey Joey Robinson in that novel is that uh, Joey didn't do what his mother wanted. Um, his mother wanted him to be a Wordsworthian romantic poet and instead he he became a uh he became a uh ad ad man he 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 worked in uh, marketing you know which mm. middle of the century that's the that's the evil occupation that's the mass mass man occupation the man in the gray flannel suit and stuff like that <laughs> so he's he's failed and yet he still can't he still can't escape he still can't escape her imagination Okay. He 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 he's drawn back to this farm that represents her weird idealist pastoral vision of the good life, and he hates it, but he can't stop going back. And at the end of the novel, he calls it our farm instead of your farm. Well, and that's interesting because uh, one detail uh, that you relate from this novel, and I've not read it, so feel free to fill in whatever context is necessary here, is that he hears a Bardian sermon. Uh, that sort of shifts his moral center from righteousness to kindness. And it seems like that's kind of the kind of move that would turn the farm into our farm. Is that fair enough? Yeah, I think I think one way to read that is that it's changed his imagination. Mm-hmm. The the thing the things he imagined uh the things he imagined his life to be and his relationship to his mother to be, that that sermon turns them around in a helpful way. Mm-hmm. I've also not met very many small town preachers who read Karl Barth, but I'm, I'm, yeah, willing, I'm well, willing to let that slide. 
<laughs> there was a when, when the um, when the Adam Begley biography of Updike came out mm-hmm. uh, a few years ago, Louis Menand uh, reviewed it for the New Yorker, and he he talked about Updike's self uh, self deprecation, uh, and and he said that Updike gets equated with his characters, but the one thing his characters couldn't do was create John Updike. <laughs> Nice. So, so you get the, you, yeah you get that preacher who I, I suspect is is much more updike than any small town preacher. Right, right. Well, I want to go to another division of novels that you treat in this book, uh, and this is stories about communities that look past or even demand adultery as a part of life. Uh, and your discussion of the novel "Marry Me" is especially memorable here. Talk to our listeners a bit about Sally's experience of imagining her own adultery behind closed doors, because this imaginative reversal, I mean, is, is again, one of those images that stuck with me, and, and as you're going to hear many times, listeners, makes me wish I had read more John Updike. Have you read Marry Me? I have not. You'd, you'd probably dig it, because it's, it's built on this um, medieval structure it's it's he calls it a romance marry me marry okay. me uh, colon a, a romance it's actually the first updike novel i ever read um i don't think it's one most people start with and and for a long time it was considered a kind of inferior copy of couples mm-hmm. which is the one everybody knows uh, but it actually it came first and it just wasn't published for 10 years after it was written anyway um that novel begins with probably the most idealized moment in all of updike's fiction, which is um, Jerry and Sally are having an affair, and they're on the beach underneath this um, this sun that he he says won't stand still, because it's this this moment that can't be frozen in time, but they're they're taking communion together, they're drinking wine out of a out of a broken uh, a broken wine bottle, and and for the moment everything is perfect, and it's clear from that that that's how they imagine their relationship to be, but the only reason the relationship can be that way is that it's fundamentally unreal. The way, the way adulterous relationships often are in Updike, they're they're maybe unreal is the wrong word, but they're unstable. They they're not going to last. It's interesting. He has all these marriages in his novels, and they're always, um, almost always, uh, adultery breaking them apart. And yet, an awful lot of these characters stay married. Because because marriage is lasting in a way that adultery isn't, and adultery threatens the marriages, but often doesn't blow them apart. Anyway, that's that's kind of neither here nor there. The the come down comes in the next chapter. You have this idealized first chapter, and the come down comes when she sneaks away and visits him when he's on a business trip to Washington D.C. and everything is fine, and then all of a sudden she starts to see herself through the imagined eyes of the other people around her. And she sees herself not as the hero of a medieval romance, heroine of a medieval romance. She sees herself not as Isolde, but as, uh, well, you know, a kind of shabby, um, sleazy woman involved in a not very interesting adulterous affair. And, mm-hmm. and this, is a, this is a crisis for her. Because because the the scrim she had put over the world has revealed itself to be inadequate and and I mean my contention is imaginatively idealized uh, ideally speaking 
um, this is the motion of Updike's novels is we, we put these scrims in front of the, the real world and then the real world breaks through, but you can't not put another scrim in its place. And that's what happens in the novel as well. Mm-hmm. She just, she can't, she, she can't live with this idealized picture of reality, but there's no other way to live. Right, right. I'm reminded of a, uh, a riff that appears in a lot of Stan Hauerwas's books that, uh, ultimately, only goodness can remain interesting that one person's sin is just like any other person's sin. Yeah. And and that's, that must be true from the outside, but it's not how it feels to us. Right. I mean, your mm-hmm. experience of your sin is that it's either much worse or more exciting or whatever than everybody else's. Well, and of but, course, I mean, that's how I doing his Wittgenstein mess with your head thing, because that's precisely the stereotype, right? Yeah, but I I don't know. I mean, I'm 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 coming from this existentialist tradition, which is an extension of phenomenology. So in in some ways, in some ways, I have to say that your your experience of your sin is is kind of the only reality of your sin you're going to get. Do you, do you know what I mean? Yeah, I can see that to some extent. I can see that to some extent. You have to I, you have to bracket that real world. Now Updike doesn't do that, right? Because the real world is constantly intruding. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the world in itself, in other words, is always intruding. Right, yeah. So you, you construct this narrative about your life, but the the real world always comes in and breaks up the narrative, at which point it's not that you live in the real world, it's that you create another narrative. Right, right. And, and that's interesting because, I mean, you have some things, and we're going to talk about them a little bit later, to say about postmodernism at the end of this thing. At the end of this book, I shouldn't call it a thing because it's exactly the opposite, right? Uh, <laughs> but, but uh, you know, my own postmodern proclivities kind of, I don't know, I mean, chafe under that and say, okay, you don't get intruded on by things, you get intruded on by other narratives. But we, yeah. we can talk about that later. We can talk about that later. Yeah, I, is, I mean, why, why I ultimately argue that Updike's not a postmodernist, that yeah, he's, yeah. He, he kind of gives two cheers for postmodernism. Mm-hmm. I, and you know, I would I would put him much closer in like, hmm, could we say he belongs with Paul Ricoeur? I don't think I mentioned Ricoeur at the end of that, but I, Ricoeur would seem to me to have more room open for, I, I don't know, the intrusion of non-narrative. Right, right, right. I mean, it, it is that you know incredulity towards the meta narrative that you know Leotard talks about, and wow, are we ever dro- name dropping? But I. <laughs> I want to move on, though, because I want to talk about some novels that I have read. And I have to admit, when I got to the Scarlet Letter trilogy, I did let out a little cheer because now I was reading Farmer on books that I did read. I also have to tell you that I read this section of your book, Michael, while I was waiting on my daughter's gymnastics class to let out. Nice. So I I was surrounded by, you know, teenage girls in various states of undress and their mothers, praying to God no one would ask me what I was reading. (laughs) (laughs) It made me think of that. Uh, have you read the short story, uh, The Music School? No, I haven't. Uh, you should read that. It's a, it's a kind of monologue, and he's waiting for his daughter to get a music lessons and, and talking about – it's essentially a philosophical rumination. It's got I, what, I, what I take to be Updike's best uh, religious statement. The world is the host. It must be chewed. Okay. <laughs> but let's get on to A Month of Sundays. I could really see a running dialectic between imagination and material things in this novel. 
uh, whatever and whomever Tom can't control with his imagination, he just violently lashes out against whatever it is that resists him. So how does that link up with his preference of Bart over Tillich, of all things? Yeah, I, I wonder about that. Uh, I, I don't know that this disproves my point, but I, I certainly wrestled with this for a long time. It's much easier with Roger Lambert because you can mm-hmm. just say Roger Lambert's a lousy Bardian and has no idea he's a lousy, lousy Bardian. <laughs> or maybe he's the world's best Bardian. Maybe, maybe to be one is to be the other. I don't know. Okay. I think in some ways Bart is the thing that Bart is so concrete, right? I mean, Bart, Bart's whole thing is so uncompromising and, and Marshfield is such a compromiser. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, um, I don't I don't know how to answer this question. When you sent me when you sent me the question before, I was like, oh, I hope we don't get to that. One. <laughs> well, well, I think it's fascinating because I mean, with Tillich at the very least, and I have only read you know smatterings of Tillich, but there's such a strong sort of liberal Protestant emphasis on the religious experience. Yeah, that's a lot more malleable than Bart's you know just militant insistence that. Christ is primary to any kind of experience that we might have, to any kind of metaphor we might deploy, that Christ is this raw reality intruding on our mental systems and forcing us to repent. I mean, is that, right. is that a fair enough thing? I, I think that's an accurate representation of, of Bart and Tillich. And, and I, I, I can tell you what Bart's doing in that book mm-hmm. um, from a perspective other than the perspective of my book. Yeah. Which is... Um, and, you know, some other scholar has made this argument, and right now I can't remember who it was. That's so all right. If they happen to be listening, I'm very sorry. <laughs> um, but but Marshfield is Marshfield is clinging to Bart because he he is severing grace from works. So so in some ways, Marshfield's the ultimate Protestant. Because what you do doesn't matter. What you believe is what matters. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I mean, there's something monstrous about that. And I don't know the degree to which Updike's criticizing it or the degree to which he's um, he's giving us that and, and hoping it shocks us. But I, I think religiously speaking, theologically speaking, that's that's what Bart is doing in that novel. What he has to do with the imagination, I think, is is rougher because in, in some ways he is he is an emissary of that unbending uh, reality that we bang up against. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah. And I mean, I I think it's also interesting that, like you said, I mean, Marshfield comes across as an utter monster throughout this novel, uh, and I mean. It, what fascinates me about his preference for Bart is that it's precisely what someone who wanted to justify himself wouldn't prefer. So, I mean, it is that kernel of soul that wants to repent that keeps you simply from dismissing him out of hand, or at least keeps me from dismissing him out of hand. Is that fair enough? Yeah, but he he's so unrepentant. He, I think, is the least attractive character, main character in any Updike novel. Maybe the Maybe the guy from uh, toward the end of time, if you've read that, is worse. But I I hate Marshfield so much. I think he's mm-hmm. just so he's so debased, right? And he's so proud of being debased, and he <laughs> maintains that debasement at the same time. 
he maintains this theological superiority. And I, I, I have trouble believing it's a satire of that attitude. I think uh, Updike described himself multiple times as uh, antinomian. And mm-hmm. I mean, who's more antinomian than Marshfield? Yeah, yeah. On the other hand, though, and I guess what I was trying to get across is not that Bart makes him likable, but it keeps me from simplifying him. Yeah, because, well, because, yeah, he's because, not simple. Yeah, because that kernel of Bart remains there, there is at the very least something pulling him away from his own tyranny of the soul, to, to borrow from Plato for a moment. And that seems that seems in line with Dimsdale. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I mean, talk a little bit about that. Yeah, the, the three novels. Letter. Yeah, the three levels we're talking about are rewrites of the Scarlet Letter, each from a different perspective. So the Scarlet mm-hmm. Letter is a is as Updike reads it, is a love triangle between a woman, a man of science, and a man of faith. So uh, Marshfield is our hero in uh, in a month of Sundays, and he's he's the Dimsdale character. You get Field, uh, Dale, <laughs> um, and then in in Rogers' version. Roger is Roger Chillingsworth, but I mean that that novel does interesting things with it because um, because Roger's the Bardian theologian and he's arguing against a scientist, and yet we're supposed to see him as Roger Chillingsworth, the man of science. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the third one, which I think way fewer people read, is S, which is told from the perspective of Hester Prynne, and that's that's about mm-hmm. a that's about a woman who leaves her husband and goes to live on an ashram. Mm-hmm. I think S is much better than people give it credit for, by the way. Oh, yeah, I like that novel. Yeah. Um, but I want to backtrack a little bit, and I want to talk about Roger's version, because when I read Roger's version as a seminarian, which is a terrible time to read Roger's version. That's okay. I read <laughs> Month of Sundays on my honeymoon. Oh, Lord have mercy. All right. I got caught completely off guard at the end when I realized that the entire affair between Dale, the computer science graduate student, and Esther, the divinity prof's wife, was completely a fabrication of Roger's rotten mind. Uh, I was an unsophisticated reader of Updike. I didn't see that coming. I also didn't know that Bruce Willis was dead the whole time in Sixth Sense, okay? But now that I've read your book, I see that this is a variation on this running theme of the power of imagination. So talk to our listeners for a moment about Roger and what the sins of imagination look like in his version. Well, I would I would actually say that you're you're not making it complex enough because because while it's true we have no actual hard evidence that the the affair ever happened, there are hints throughout the the ending of that novel that in fact what Roger's been imagining is exactly what happened, and so it's 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 unclear whether whether his imaginative projection is uh, is connected to the thing itself. It's it's unclear whether the noumenon of that relationship is the same as his phenomenon. Okay. Um, All right. Because you you get you get Verna, um, his his niece, talking about how Dale had an older lover in Roger's neighborhood, which I mean that certainly sounds like it would be Roger's wife, and yet yeah, but it could be anyone else in that neighborhood. And, well, and Verna's such a consummate liar, you know. I mean, she's <laughs> she, she's she's untrustworthy at the very least. But what what I'm saying is, what I'm saying is, we don't know one way or the other, and I think that's important. Do you know that some people read the end of that novel as um, Esther being pregnant? No, it didn't even occur to me. And then I, I read some critics saying it, and I thought, well, gee. Uh, uh, and but 
to, to me, the important thing is the end of the novel ends with Esther being unpredictable to Roger, that, that he can't mm-hmm. control her. Whatever happened, whether, whether her affair with Dale was real or the product of his imagination, he um, he can't control who she is. So she's going to go to church just to annoy him, she says, which mm-hmm. is kind of great. Well, and then another thing that you pointed out in this novel that honestly slipped by me when I read it as a seminarian was that Roger also either completely fabricates or at the very least greatly shapes the conversation that Dale has with the atheist professor at the cocktail party. That's right. It's the, the sort of conversation that Roger would like them to have, right? Yeah. Because yeah, yeah. Dale, Dale gets humiliated and embarrassed and mm-hmm. Roger kind of wants him to be humiliated and embarrassed and is kind of afraid that he'll be humiliated and embarrassed. I mean, for those who hasn't, who haven't read the novel, um, Dale is a computer programmer, evangelical, who is convinced that uh, some sort of pseudoscientific uh, astrophysics computer thing can prove the existence of God. Um, mm. And, and I'm, again, I'm not sure how much of it is up-to-date science in 1986 and how much of it is just mumbo-jumbo. <laughs> um, but it certainly reads as mumbo-jumbo to me, and Roger, Roger treats it as mumbo-jumbo. But he, at the, near the end of the novel, Roger throws a cocktail party, and Dale comes and talks to an, uh, an atheist astrophysicist. And as Roger stands across the room imagining their conversation he has the astrophysicist very glibly and patiently uh disprove every single one of dale's points mm-hmm. and that's interesting because i mean roger can't do that roger doesn't know enough science to do it roger would like that to happen but it's also clear that throughout the novel that as roger is in some ways sexually attracted to dale he is also he he on one level would clearly like for Dale to be able to prove the existence of God because it would clear up some doubts he has. And also he would like him not to do that because doing that would require him to live in a different way than he's lived. He's a, I don't know how to describe him other than a, um, a lapsed theologian. Mm-hmm. He, he was a pastor and then he became a, he became an academic teacher of heresy like that's his that's his beat. He teaches he teaches about the heretics at uh, I think a, a thinly veiled Princeton is is where he is. Um, so so it's interesting. It it's unclear what Roger wants from that. So it's unclear whether if this is just an imaginative projection, if it's a if it's a self destructive one or not. Mm-hmm. What do you what do you think? Do you think he's do you think that conversation really happened? Well, the first time I read the novel, I certainly did. And I mean, I thought that, you know, this is really kind of what solidified Roger as, I mean, just the arch villain of the novel, uh, as if he weren't before I realized, but, uh, you know, well, when you sleep with your, when you sleep with your pregnant niece, yeah, yeah, step, step niece, but you know, it's not enough for him just to commit adultery. It's not enough for him just to teach theology when, you know, he is largely indifferent to the any actual call of the divine. He also has to take the one character who has a, I guess, a sincere belief and throw him to a scenario that destroys it. So, I mean, anything that even resembles goodness in this novel, he has to make sure it doesn't persist. Yeah, or even happiness. Yeah. So... Yeah, I mean, you know, that I, I found that scene more horrifying than anything else in the novel the first time I read it. But then, like I said, when I read your book, it occurred to me that, you know, it might even be worse than that because it might be that it didn't happen, but Roger wishes that it happened. 
<laughs> well, and it, it does seem that Dale loses his faith. Yeah. I, I mean, he certainly gives up on this project. And, and the way Verna talks about it, it seems that he's lost his faith. So I don't know. I, again, all of that is ambiguous. The, I think the important thing here is contained in the title. This is Roger's version. Yeah. And not, not his in, – interpretation is not even the right word because it goes beyond that. It's, it's Roger's presentation of what's happening. It's Roger's mm-hmm. imagining, uh, imagining of what's happening. Right. Roger's invention. Yeah. Well, at any rate, I want to get to the third uh, Scarlet Letter novel. Uh, again, I'll confess that I'm an unsophisticated reader of modern novels, so I picked up on the Arhat's Long Con in S., but I never really picked up on his ideal, idealization, pardon me, of Sarah as a continuation of what Tom and Roger are doing. So how is it that making Sarah a goddess controls her with the power of imagination? Well, yeah, and he, what's, what's great about that is, is she is unsophisticated, to use your word. She's unsophisticated enough to think that he's praising her or, or to think that he's offering her freedom. He, he speaks about her in religious terminology. He, he speaks about her as this kind of Hindu sex goddess and, and says all these things about how a woman's really in control and all this. And, and so he's, he's setting up this image of her, not for himself, but for her. And because she's coming from a very conservative environment in New England where she feels like her husband, Charles, has been controlling her, she can't recognize that this is just another form of control. Mm -hmm. So talk about, I mean, some of the ways that she resists that towards the end because I I think that that dynamic that you talk about, more so in Roger's version than in Month of Sundays, but I mean really kind of plays out in S. Yeah, she um, she's smarter than than the novel initially makes you think she is. So the novel sets her up as a hypocrite because she's this woman she's this woman who talks a lot about getting rid of material goods and all this stuff and yet she does not give the ashram the money they asked for. She 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 says she's going to give them these millions of dollars and instead she funnels them into an offshore account and she's making these these special trips into town and she's doing this and that and I think it's because Deep down, she knows she's being conned, even if consciously she doesn't know she's being conned. It ends up being her salvation that she saves this money, because if she hadn't, she would have given her entire fortune to this con man and wouldn't mm-hmm. have had anything left. And and so she's actually – she actually gets that uh, feminist freedom she's been looking for the whole time at the end, but only by severing herself from men altogether. Uh, she she no longer has her husband. She no longer has her male psychotherapist. She no longer has the uh, the arhat, and she's she's free in her way. It'd be interesting to know what Uptake thought was going to happen to her after this novel ended, because mm-hmm. it just ends with her you know driving off into the sunset. Right, right. Well, I mean, honestly, I mean, I think that the way your book progresses, I mean, you kind of answer that because it might look something like the Witches of Eastwick. Yeah. Oh, you're so, not, you're not, you're, you're never, you're never safe as long as there's men in the world. <laughs> <laughs> because in that, you know, in that novel, and again, it's one that I haven't read, but I feel like I should now, um, Van Horn, the, the diabolic villain in the, in the story, uh, has a kind of plastic magic that stands as opposed to the women's nature magic. But honestly, I mean, what really caught my imagination is that your assertion that Van Horn doesn't have a powerful imagination himself so much as the women have immensely powerful imaginations 
that he has the savvy or the knack, depending on what translation of Plato's Gorgias you're reading, for turning it in whatever direction he wants to. So I sensed, you know, like I said, something like the Gorgias or the Phaedrus going on. Am I in the neighborhood or is something else operating on the imagination in Witches of Eastwick? No, I think that's I think that's very accurate. You have these three women whose enormous imaginative power becomes even more enormous when they um when they work together. They have this coven that meets once a week and and men are supremely unimportant to them. It's really kind of amazing. Uh, this is Updike's parody of a certain sort of 1970s feminism. Mm-hmm. But uh one of them one of them has turned her husband into a placemat. And the other one, uh, oh, I, I can't remember what she does with him. She shrinks him down like a, a like a Russian nesting doll or something. <laughs> the, the, these these men, they can get their sexual satisfaction from these men, and then they don't need them at all because their their important relationships are with each other, uh, and not with the men in their lives. And then Van Horn comes in, and like 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 you say, he doesn't. Um, it, it's not that he has power in himself, but he knows how to co-opt their power. I mean, there's a there's a lesson there about the devil. He's clearly supposed to be the devil, mm-hmm. um, and the the devil not being able to do anything unless God gives him permission to first. And and I mean, there's there's a sense that happens. They they one by one get seduced, and he um he neuters them essentially and and takes control. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, uh, one of Updike's points here, by the way, mm-hmm. I, 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 I don't hit this as much because I'm trying to I'm trying to make him um, a little more friendly to women than sometimes people accuse him of being. <laughs> um, but I, I do think one of his points here is this is a satire on on the idea that if women ran the world, we wouldn't have war and things like that, because the, the women in this novel are quite vicious. Right, right. They're they're very powerful and 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 they're lovable in their way. I mean, it's it's difficult it's difficult not to sympathize with them over all the other people in the novel, but um, they're not gentle. This mm-hmm. isn't this isn't Mother Mary meek and mild. <laughs> well, Michael, one big omission from this book, and it's one you acknowledge in the introduction, so you're not trying to pull a fast one on us. I, I was made to, by the way. One of the uh, one of the early reviewers of the book. Uh, said, hey, how come you're not talking about Rabbit? Ah, okay. My initial solution, by the way, was just to call the book Beyond Rabbit, Imagination and Idealism in John Updike's Fiction. Nice, (laughs) nice. (laughs) But in this book, you don't have any sustained examination of the Rabbit Angstrom novels. Uh, And in fact, you say that Imagination in those novels is a project that some other critic is going to have to take on in some other book at some other time. How lazy is that? (laughs) Well, see, I'm, I'm going to let you, you know, find some redemption here, Michael. So I want you to talk to that Updike critic. What counsel would you give her as she starts imagination and idealism in John Updike's rabbit novels? I would point to a progressive lessening. So I think I think in the first novel you have you you have a Harry Angstrom who is very imaginative. He has these he has these big um, big dreams. He has he he's able to access the divine in ways that nobody else can see. There's a really wonderful passage in Rabbit Run where he uh, he's playing golf with the uh, rather unimaginative Episcopalian minister, mm-hmm. and uh, they're standing in the the I, I can't remember how, the most unlovely landscape there's ever been or something like that, mm-hmm. and. Uh, 
and Rabbit says that he has this feeling that there's something out there that wants him to find it. And then he, he hits a golf ball and yells, that's it. Like he's found it. And I, I you know, if, if faith is an act of imagination, I would say that is, that is an act of the imagination as well. And, and it's a, a misplaced one, I think, in Updike's point of view. I think, I think Rabbit's form of spirituality is uh, ultimately unsustainable. But it is a uh, it, he is imaginative at the very least, and you you think about his sexual imagination as well. Um, by the second novel, he's lost it. He's been he's been sapped of he's been sapped of his energy. And I mean the the the, the easiest way to look at it is is that he doesn't want to have sex anymore. He does it, and he's but he's completely uninterested. And and there's some really nasty uh, there's some really nasty lines in Rabbit Radix to that effect. I think that's a a really supremely ugly novel. I, I find it very difficult to read because it's so it's so it's it's a nasty novel. Mm-hmm. He gets it back a little bit in Rabbit is Rich because he has this new new influx of grace, you might call it, or imagination in, in the form of money. And so he he's he's again um he's 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 once again uh able to project and to 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 live uh, in a way that he he hadn't been able to ten years before that, he's lost it again in in Rabbit at Rest, and the the last hundred pages of that novel are are one last ditch effort for him to um to create a world to live in, and and if you've if you've read that novel, you know that his his uh what results from it is is kind of sad and and kind of glorious as well. It's 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 a pretty ambiguous ending, but even when he's at his lowest, he's better than his son. And I, I think I think one of the things that's, that makes those novels frustrating is the amount of disdain that Rabbit has for Nelson. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, find, I find Rabbit very unappealing in some ways. I, I'm, you're supposed to. But the reason he doesn't like Nelson is because Nelson's never had imagination. He's, he's, he just kind of floats along. Um, and he he has no ambition is another way to say that I suppose or he has no faith too, and so um, I, I think I think a uh, an examination of those two in tandem to to see how they go up and down throughout those four novels might be helpful. All right, all right. But I'm glad I don't write it. <laughs> well, at the end of this book, you turn from Updike's fiction to his memoir, and you pit his affirmation of material reality against postmodern suspicion that there's nothing outside the text or as you translate it that there is no outer text so what do we learn about updike as a thinker from his forays into writing his own memories without the distance of i guess the irony of formal fiction yeah um and and he gets called a realist all the time. Um, there's a I, I forget which john barth essay it is it's either uh it's either the Oh, what's it called? The, the the we we did an episode on it on the Christian Humanist podcast. Uh, the literature of exhaustion and the literature yep. of, of replenishment. That's the one. <laughs> there, there, there's a, there's a line there about uh, that, that implies that Updike is some sort of uh, traditionalist, which I guess in some ways he is. But I mean, for crying out loud, his third novel had a mythological overlay on it that that puts Ulysses to shame. And mm-hmm. and you get something like Roger's version, where half the novel may or may not take place in the guy's mind. And <laughs> I'd like to, to think of him as just a straight realist, I think, is very um, very short-sighted. And yet he is a realist in some ways, in the sense that 
there is a life outside the text here. There's he is he is engaging not just with the history of literature and the history of mythology or whatever, but he's he's engaging with the the quote unquote real world, and he sees literature as doing something in the real world, and his characters his characters are at least slapped in the face by the real world. So mm-hmm. I I don't think of him as a postmodernist, but I do think he he pushes in that postmodern direction. Um, in some sense, because I don't think he believes we ever have access to the to the world as it is, and I don't think he wants us to. I think if he if 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 the world is as it is, it's probably a mechanical world that, that is not fit for human beings to live in. And so you need this imagination or falsification um, in order to in order to have a place in the world. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting, like you said. I mean, he he the opposition that he sets up is between imagination and then things, right? And, I mean, I, I realize we're drifting back out of Sartre, back into Kant here, but, uh, you know, the, the the postmodern move that he seems to resist, and you can tell me if I'm reading this right, is the notion that what pushes back is not real-world, unmitigated, but it is another version of the world pushing against your version of the world. Is that is that fair enough, or am I getting him wrong? That is how I read him. Okay. So again, you know that you know my own uh, you know postmodern pedigree that I talk about all the time on these shows. Uh, I found myself you know at a at a distance from Updike in that respect. Yeah, I, I mean, and, and in this case, you're more postmodernist than him, and you're more postmodernist than me too, because the the vision <laughs> I've sketched out for him here, I mean, it may just be me putting my own my own perspective on top of him, but I um uh, this this is this is I really think what his what his work is doing, mm-hmm. um, and and to, to me it sounds about right. All right, the, that's fair. The enough. world the world that breaks the world that breaks our narratives is a real world, but we only have access to, to it through narratives. So the narratives are being broken, but they're always having to be replaced. Now, if you want to say if you want to say uh well, what you think is of the real world that you can't access without narrative is just another narrative, go for it. But I'm I'm inclined to I'm inclined to hold out that realm of the noumenon and uh and and let it hang there and just say we're never going to be able to get to it. Well, I wouldn't say it's just another narrative. I would say it is another narrative. <laughs> right, right. It's, it's not some sort of diminution. <laughs> I, and I mean, I, I, I'm kind of with Derrida when he says that there's nothing outside the text. Like, I, I get that, or there's no, there's no outside text. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's, he's saying there's no world without interpretation. And I, I that just, in, in terms of human life, in terms of our experience of the world, that's exactly right. But um, I I do think there's something pressing back that goes beyond our narratives. Okay, that's fair enough. I'm I'm an idealist, but only to a certain extent. And <laughs> I mean, and I think that's I think that's true of Updike and his characters too. I mean, they're all idealists in the sense that everybody has to be. They're all imaginative because everybody has to be, or else fall into despair, right? But um, it's when you go too far. It's it's when you it's when your construction of the world doesn't match that thing that you can't see anyway. That's, that's when you get into trouble. All right. All right. Well, Michael, we're going to do a uh, Christian humanist profiles first. Uh, I've been at the wheel for most of this conversation. So in the spirit of hospitality, I want Michael Farmer to have the last word. Uh, what do you want our listeners thinking about Updike, imagination, adultery, or whatever else as we head for the door? 
That connection between faith and imagination is very important to me. Um, Earlier this summer, I, I had an article published in Touchstone. I actually wrote the article right after I finished this book. It just took them a while to publish it, uh, in which I argue that the only solution to the loss of faith in the modern world is an increase in the imagination. So I think it's up to Christian artists in particular to create worlds for us where faith is possible, because I think increasingly, when you look at the world we actually live in, it's very difficult to have faith, and what you need is someone to map another world on top of that one where faith is possible. Does that make sense? That does. Well, Michael Farmer, thank you for coming on and being on the other side of the desk on Christian Humanist Profiles. Thanks for having me. This was fun. Listeners, thank you for downloading and listening in. Christian Humanist Profiles is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our audio editor is Britt Stack. And I am Nathan Gilmore here with Michael Farmer saying, go in grace, go in peace, serve the Lord.